Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving Iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving Iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 119. Today my guest is Sean Hackett and Sean is the president of Hackett Financial Advisors and he has some very unique stuff as far as how he tracks what he sees happening in the economy. Uh, he reached out to me after uh, about December time frame and, and um, kind of working back and forth and finally got him on the, uh, on the podcast here. So Sean, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Hopefully, uh, we have some good information for your listeners. Yeah, I think so. After what we've talked about, I feel pretty good about about what your message is going to be. So, Sean, why don't you give me a little background on yourself and uh, what it is you do at Hackett Financial Advisors? We started Hackett Financial Advisors about 11 years ago. The whole purpose um, was to try to help our producers, farmers, our ag customers um, better predict future price behavior so that they could make better decisions on when to sell or when to buy their their needs. And we felt one of the best ways to do that was using capital flows or what we call insider capital flows in and out of ag markets. Many people follow what's called the commitment of traders report. It comes out every Friday from the government. Um, it shows speculators and commercial operators buying and selling, but we never really found anyone that could come up and make that a usable, useful tool for the farmer to be able to access and make better decisions. So we went and created our own algorithm 11 years ago to do just that and back tested it 40 years and have come up with a really, really good system of measuring what we call the smart money in these markets. It gives very reliable, consistent uh, buy signals and sell signals. And so that's really the core of what we do. There's other factors, there's other things we look at, other indicators we we use to, to kind of hone in on everything. But we really are this insider capital flow-based construct that helps us predict the future without necessarily knowing what's coming exactly. Okay. All right. So 2019, um, man, I've read everything from, you know, it's, things are going to be good to possible recessions to collapse in the stock market to more record highs to I mean it's just it depends on what you read and who you talk to and what you come up with but looking at 2019 knowing what you know based on the information that you've been gathering what what's your feel for 2019 for 2019 our feeling is at least for agricultural markets is that we're going to have a pretty good year uh 2018 was a very bad year um you know we had a strong dollar we had trade wars all kinds of issues that kept the, the prices pretty depressed but we see those sh- uh, those those things shifting in 2019, um, we see the U.S. dollar topping out if it already hasn't. We see the stock market continuing to have troubles like it has. And um, in our smart money work, is showing that the smart money, the insiders are betting heavily on higher prices heading into 2019. And it sure looks to me from everything that I see, you know, that we're going to have some kind of a more friendly trade agreement or trade arrangement with China, and I think that could certainly provide a better environment for 
farmers and pricing to be at levels that can allow them to make a margin. So are the buy signals, are they, are they coming strictly because of the fact that they've built, they feel like that the China situation, the trade situation that's there, um, that that's what's driving that is going to drive that price up because we're, we're still seeing some pretty record carryouts and some pretty record um, supply, you know, it's still, still an issue. We are looking at record crops and everywhere, anybody, pretty much anywhere that they grow anything anymore seems to be a record crop unless you're in Russia or Ukraine or Australia trying to grow, grow wheat right now. Yeah, I mean, what we always tell our customers is we never know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. Um, we could speculate. I mean, I would imagine uh, the smart money probably has a pretty good idea that the China trade relations are going to get better. Um, we would also imagine that the, you know, the Cargills of the world who are part of the insiders probably have better weather modeling than most um, and probably can see weather coming well before everybody else because they have billions of dollars to spend on such things. Right, <laughs> right. That we get these buy signals, and, and, and very often, 30 to 45 days later, we get some massive weather change and pattern that moves the markets higher, almost as if they, they could see it coming. So, mm-hmm. so we, we never know why. We just know when they get to certain levels for over 40 years, this meant that the market's ready to go higher. And usually, when the market's at a low, it's hard to see why it would go higher because at that point, you're at the maximum bearish, you know, maximum bearish. Um, overall view, but, but, but we would take a little bit of a different view on, on, on what's going on with supply and demand, at least in grains. When we look at uh, the wheat market, wheat stocks X China is actually at the lowest level since 2010, 2012. Corn stocks X China are actually at their lowest levels relative to demand uh, since 2010, 2012. The only market that there's a problem that we see is soybeans, which are you know, busting at the seams right now, but corn and we are actually been, despite record crops, as you said correctly, we've been actually drawing these stocks down because demand has just been you know, very, very strong. And uh, so, so we actually think that under the surface, the fundamentals are getting better for many ag markets, but the market has been unwilling to, to, to trade that as much because they've been so concerned about what a trade war might mean is it a recession? Are they ever going to buy soybeans again? All those things, you know, that have kept speculators away from from coming into our markets right now. Okay, so that is a, a great segue into one of my one of the reasons I wanted you on here. So, about two hundred and fifty years ago, there was an event called the Dalton Minimum, and the Dalton Minimum was a, for lack of a better term, a mini ice age. Um, basically, you can go and track um, solar flare activity in you can they've been able to track it through tree rings and all the different glacier stuff and so on and so forth. Basically what happened was about everything from the United States, probably north of Kansas, up into Canada, you know, obviously Canada, all the way around that the top of the globe and, and same with down south, made it to the point where it was too cold to really grow any food of any real magnitude, right? Shorter seasons, so on and so forth. So you brought that up as something that you all tracked and weather modeling and those kind of things. So talk a little bit about that and, and what your what your forecasting and what your weather modeling is, is showing you. What's interesting is that, you know, uh, the sun from our work is the most important driver of weather, especially when it gets into these uh, what we call grand solar cycle minimums like the Dalton, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And it's a very repeatable cycle. And the reason that this cycle happens is because 
there are four magnetic fields around the sun. I don't want to get, you know, too complicated, but they spin around at different resonance frequencies. Most of the time they're on one side of the sun or the other, and it creates um, enough of a magnetic strength that causes sunspots to occur normally. But about every 250 years, and we can actually measure, they'll get a, two will get on one side, two will get on the other side, and they cancel each other off, meaning that the, that the magnetic field's uh, strength falls dramatically. And when the magnetic field is low or non-existent, sunspots cannot occur. And so we're entering that period where those magnetic fields are, on the, are moving to the opposite side uh, of the sun. And they will be in this orientation for the next 30 to 40 years before they start going back to being more constructive again. And during these periods, when the sun is very, very quiet, it dramatically changes the interaction of solar radiation to the atmosphere, of cosmic rays to the atmosphere, upper level wind patterns, and dramatically alters our, our overall weather. Um, and so it, it is a big, big deal. Um, as you said, we now that we have you know tree rings, ice core, we have computers and really able to, to better define what happened 250 years ago and even before, and we are clearly in one of those periods. And, and, and if history is any guide, producing food over the next 30 or 40 years at the rates that we've been used to when the sun is normal is going to prove to be very, very difficult. And we're going to have to see some kind of a shift in how the world prices food. And we're also going to have to come up with new solutions. How do we grow food um, with this kind of a disruptive weather pattern? So it's, it's something we think is very serious. And, it, and it's here and now, and we believe it's going to really start impacting markets going forward, especially over the next five years. Okay. So as far as weather patterns go, the last three years, especially, there's been extremes, right? So either you go from extreme drought and it is the world coming to an end and all of a sudden you get 12 inches of rain in two weeks, you know, stuff like that. That is a direct correlation to kind of the onset of what you're talking about, correct? It is. And the reason that, that, that these extreme patterns exist, for example, right now we have extreme flooding going on in Argentina uh, at a critical time of grain production. We have an extreme drought going on in Brazil, in their core grain areas. So this dichotomy is, is not unusual. But the reason that it happens is that when the sun goes quiet, uh, the cosmic rays that are bombarding the earth, which are normally protected from the sun's heliosphere when it's firing on all cylinders, the sun is not able to protect the earth. And these high charged cosmic rays enter the atmosphere at very, very high rates in very large quantities, and they change the jet stream, both the southern and northern jet stream. And it's, normally, it's a it's a west to east zonal flow where everything kind of moves along at a very nice pace, and we don't get a lot of what we call stagnant patterns. But in this construct, we get what's called the meridional jet stream, north to south. The polar vortex that you hear so much about in recent years is how the cold drives down from the Arctic region because the jet stream is so loopy. They, I call it, we call it loopy. You know, it's so meridional. And when it gets in that construct, weather systems can't move as freely as they used to. And they get stuck in these stationary patterns. So where it's been dry, it stays dry. Where it's been wet, it stays wet for long periods of time. And then what happens is the jet stream will shift. 
it'll it'll the phase will shift and then where was wet is is now dry and dry is wet and it can happen just like that and you get these extremes temperatures are the same way um so it's it's a it's a very disruptive pattern and it causes as you said these extreme weather patterns that we've been seeing more prevalently and we're going to continue to see more prevalently we're expecting a very very cold winter finish to the winter here starting in february march and april you'll be hearing polar vortex repeatedly as this jet stream has moved into another significant uh, one of these loopy structures that's going to drive the cold air back into the u.s and cause all kinds of problems right and that's you know it's like you like i said in the last three years you know you've looked at if you look at planning cycles it, we've we've been in a rush to get stuff planted every year for the past three years for sure and it's all been like last year it was too cold in the north for too long um which which absolutely stalled what happened through minnesota and wisconsin and that area up there northern iowa northern indiana stuff like that and then when it did finally get warm enough it rained a whole bunch and then you know or in other in other areas it was too dry to even plant anything so we are starting to see that happen more and more and that's one of those things that, that are going to continue to be an issue so give me an idea what this looks like when this we're in this cycle this this you know really into the middle of this solar solar cycle that you're talking about we went back and we did a study of um uh, British yields of wheat, just as an example, we have very, very good data from them of what their yields did. Um, lead, the 100 years leading into 1790, which was the beginning of the Dalton minimum that you discussed, uh, yields were growing like crazy year after year, decade after decade, like we've been seeing. Then once we hit 1790, we had basically flat to down yields for the next 35 years where we had made no progress on yields and had many years where we had you know 20 or 30 percent reductions in global yields on wheat uh, in, in in the UK. Um, so our view is we'll we're expecting that uh, the global yields that we've been accustomed to seeing, which is basically yields growing at two to two and a half percent globally every year, year after year, on average, are going to slow down dramatically and probably flatten out over the next 30 years to 40 years. Prices of wheat in the UK and globally during the Dalton minimum went up fivefold from the beginning to the end. So once again, I, I don't think you can say just because it went up fivefold, then it has to go fivefold now. Maybe we go up tenfold now because we have much bigger demand base. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But what it means is that the price structure we are at now um, is unsustainably low. And if we're going to be dealing with a long period of stagnant yields with demand continuing to grow, continuing to have to feed a large and growing global population, then the price of food is going to have to go higher to reflect that. And I guess that's what we feel we're at is we're going to go through one of these price phase shifts like we did, by the way, remember 2006, corn was 235, 2008 was $8. That was a phase shift price higher that um, if you were a farmer and missed that, we, I mean, we were, there were people back in 2006 that were suggesting that people use these accumulator uh, sell programs where you would sell more and more as time went on. And I had, we had customers come to us with 80% of their crops sold at 250 cash and delivering 250 cash when the market was seven, $8 cash. I mean, it was absolutely devastating, but we want to make sure our customers, your listeners, avoid 
missing this phase shift that we expect to see over the next three years. Um, you, 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 you as a, as a farmer, having suffered as much as you've had the last three or four years, you've, you have to be able to participate in this. And, and, and so that's really what our mission and our message is, is to make sure if you make sales, don't, don't go one to two or three years out. And if you are making aggressive sales, maybe buy some call options. If your customers are into that sort of thing and have the ability to do that, to participate in the upside, or instead of making cash sales, buy some put options. You know, we, whatever you have to do to, to be in on the upside here, because once we get to this higher price level, you can make sales all day long and, and, you know, put some equity into your farming business. And that's really what we want to make sure our customers and your listeners don't miss. Right. Okay. Okay. So here's a point. Um, with the exception of Brazil and Argentina, um, if the weather pattern does and does do what it did during the Dalton minimum, pretty much between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, the equatorial zone there, um, is going to be the prime food-producing part of the world, right? So with the exception of Brazil and Argentina, for the most part, all of Africa and, and Central and South America and you know parts of Asia, Asiatic islands and stuff like that, there's not a lot of infrastructure there to go and grow enough food to feed the world. I mean, you can grow the food, just getting it out is going to be an issue. It's a great point because where the ground will be most useful in this new uh, weather regime, they don't have the infrastructure to get it out. Where they have the infrastructure to get it out, they won't be able to grow much food because the northern belt, which we've been used to and expecting to grow high yields and large production that has the infrastructure is going to be pushed southward. So you're right, there's going to have to be, and the reason why prices will need to go up, they'll need to incentivize huge infrastructure investment in these southern regions where they have very, very little, but that you just don't snap your fingers and one year's time, it's all there. I mean, it's going to take years upon years to develop this. And while we're waiting for the infrastructure to be developed, um, it's just going to be a, a high price food environment. And for those countries that have to import or that are not self-sustainable with their agricultural production, you know, it's going to be very, um, it's going to be a very difficult time. The world's going to have to work together to make sure that the least amount of collateral damage or humanitarian damage is done here because back in the Dalton minimum, there were some very, very, um, you know, un, uh, some very, very unpleasantries that took place with um, societies and, and populations that uh, didn't fare very well. So, we hope um, and pray that the world uh, starts to get along a little better. We hope that these trade negotiations with China is maybe the beginning of a process of getting a little more friendly again, because we're going to need everyone together on board on this to, to solve this. It just can't be one country or the other. And I sure hope we don't keep fighting each other, because if we do, the process is going to be painful for longer. Right. Okay. Uh, so one thing that you talked you talk to me about when we were kind of going through this and you were kind of explaining how this whole thing was going to work was was uh, the rise and fall of Chinese dynasties, right? And and how that relates back to some of this solar solar stuff you see. And, and so so talk a little bit about talk a little bit about that and and kind of how that how that is a measuring stick that you guys that, that people have used throughout history to to kind of measure these things. Well, I mean, the reason why China is such a good measure is because they have so many people that they need to feed. 
And when we've gone through these long periods, and we also know that the Chinese have never been able to really feed their country it's just too big, there's too many people, and they don't not do not have enough good ground. So when we've gone through these grand solar cycle minimum patterns and food has become scarce, it's always led to um, the people rising up and blaming the dynasties for why they can't feed their families. On top of it, it has tended to lead to global wars because those who have food, those who don't, try to go after those who do. And it becomes a very ugly situation, which is why I'm trying to, what I was trying to say before, we really need to get along or else it's going to be, you know, kind of a war related kind of a scenario that we wouldn't want to go through because um, only, there's only greater collateral damage if that happens. What we find very interesting, the Chinese, you know, uh, are have some of the very, very best work on grand solar cycles. They have some of the best data on what has happened to their history. And we find it very interesting that the one country in the world that's been stockpiling grains has been the Chinese. You know, you look at their, China, their, their corn stocks, you know, they've built these huge corn stocks, these huge wheat stocks, these huge rice stocks. Do it, um, one would have to wonder what are they preparing for? What are they, you know, they obviously are smart people. They obviously wouldn't be, for example, in rice, they own 80% of their, uh, of the, they have 80% stocks to usage of rice in China right now. I mean, they, they must know that that really makes no sense unless they're preparing for something that's coming down the pike and they're feeling that this is something that they need as a safety net because their history says when we get into these periods, it doesn't turn out very well for them. So we've, we've, we view that as a, as a, as a, sign that probably one of the smartest when it comes to solar cycle awareness is stockpiling food right now. Be a good indicator. It might, might be a good indicator something's going on. Um, so let's talk about this. So there's some, there's going to have to be in, in the United States, uh, Canada, especially um, indoor grow programs. And, and what does that look like and how does that work? I mean, so have you have any research on that that shows some possible technologies there that are, that can support being able to grow enough food inside to, to really offset some, some other source of food someplace? Absolutely. I mean, the advancements in, in greenhouses, in um, um, hydroponics, in, um, in lots of headway. In fact, venture capital has been pouring money, pouring money left and right into the, this indoor food uh, area over the last couple of years, record amounts of money has been going into this area. Um, and I'm pretty positive you're going to be seeing some publicly traded or some public offerings coming from this area over the next 12 to 18 months. I would also have to believe that venture capitalists who are very smart people and certainly are very smart about where they put their money probably have a pretty good idea or have people they know have a pretty good idea that we may be entering this kind of a phase. And they're also preparing for what could be the next best thing in terms of making money as an investment. Now, obviously we want to save people and we want to make sure they're fed, but venture capitalist only cares about making money. And if it happens to help people, so be it. So we view that the, that they're pouring money into this area in the last couple of years is very positive that, that they're getting prepared for the next phase of how are we going to solve this problem and the key companies that are going to be able to get us out of this mess 
and allow us to progress. So, so the way we're not doom and gloomers here. We, would, we don't want to convey that we see no hope to the future. We do. The first 10 years are going to be difficult because it takes time to develop all this. But we feel once that we get through the first 10 years, we're going to be fine the rest of the way, even though the weather's going to remain really, really bad. But we feel technology is going to solve a lot of the problems that, we're, that we are, will be experiencing in the next 10 years. So it's the next 10 years that we want to make sure our producers, our customers, your listeners are ready to handle because after that, then technology does it, the magic that it always does, and it solves a lot of problems, kind of like fracking and natural gas. We're running out of it. There was no hope that we were ever going to be able to solve that problem, and then fracking came along, and now we've been dealing with incredible supplies and cheap prices for a decade now. Right. Yep. Yeah, so this, I mean, it's all good stuff, man. So so give me, give me, a, give me a snapshot of... You know, 2019 price is going to come around a little bit. Looks like there could be some rallies in, in some areas, especially if you get a trade thing figured out with, with China and some TPP stuff and, and, and kind of outliers of, of the Asian Pacific regions and, and looking at, you know, solidifying the NAFTA deal with Canada and, and Mexico and getting that all locked in to where it's true blue going to happen and, and we're going to move forward with all that stuff. What does the next five years look like, you know, from, from the models that you're looking at? Well, the first, the first thing we always look at is we always look at currency. You can't, you know, you, there's no way to price forecast in a, a commodity market or an ag market without having some sense of where are we in the, in the currency cycle. Um, the U.S. dollar, ever since we came off the gold standard in 1971-72, um, we've been in a very reliable uh, eight-year cycle, top to bottom, bottom to top. Uh, that cycle topped out at at the beginning of 2017, and that's when we were expecting to see the final high in the U.S. dollar. And to this day, that actually has been the high in the U.S. dollar index. Now, we haven't crashed and burned, and we've been sort of developing what we call a topping pattern, not dissimilar to 2000 and 2003 when we had a kind of a rounding top. But, but all, all our cycle and technical work says that the U.S. dollar has begun an eight-year period that's going to be weaker, weaker, U.S. dollar is always good for U.S. dollar price commodities, especially ag markets. And it's also very, very good <clears throat> for U.S. agricultural exports. So, so, so the currency side, we feel, has turned and is going to be more and more favorable as we move into 2025 when we expect the next low in the U.S. dollar. From a weather perspective, there's a very reliable cycle that goes on at solar cycle troughs. Right now we're in a trough period where there's very almost no sunspots at all. And there's not going to be any sunspots for probably the next three or four years. When we look at the history of troughs, we always lead into it with an El Nino, like we are in now, we're in a weak El Nino. And then we move into what's called the La Nina, which is the opposite in terms of the sea surface temperature differential of the Pacific, Central Pacific Ocean. Both conditions mean two different things for who gets caught with bad weather. In El Nino, it's Europe, it's Russia, it's Asia that gets into trouble, and it's parts of South America. The U.S. tends to be okay. I mean, we tend to have okay weather during the El Nino phase, and we have been okay. Like Russia's wheat production last year was down 18% year over year, um, indicating that they, you know, they you know, had all kinds of problems in Europe. Wheat production, corn production, way down from the year before, I think down 12%. U.S. was fine. 
So, so we would be continuing to look for South America, Europe, Russia, and Asia for this growing season to have more and more problems. And for us to, to still maybe not be as good as we've been, but be okay. However, once we move into 2020 into 2022, when we expect a multi-year La Nina to kick in, the last time we had a La Nina kick in at a solar cycle trough started in 2010, and it ended in 2012. And if anybody recalls the weather in the U.S. during that period of time, it was extremely unfavorable. We had the 2012 1-in-50, 1-100-year drought that devastated our crops. That's when the U.S. gets its time to get a short crop. And everyone else will do a little bit better, but we're going to have the big problem in that phase. And that's really when ag markets take off, because if we really think about it, U.S.-based futures markets, number one job is to modulate U.S. supply and demand. If there's too much corn, then its job is to keep prices low relative to the rest of the world, so we move the corn and vice versa. So what we're continuing to believe that we're going to see is we're going to continually, we're going to see ag markets start to trend higher, as we've already seen, in 2019, and then really take off when the U.S. gets into big, big trouble in 2020 to 2022. What we'll also want to um, suggest is that La Nina patterns are very, very cold patterns. Even in a normal sunspot cycle when the planet is in a warming period, La Ninas are cold for the globe. I mean, they, they produce much colder temperatures. El Nino is a warm weather pattern. So just think of it. Think of how cold October and November was this year. And your listeners are going to see how cold it's going to be in February and March and April. And this is an El Nino. This is a warm, this is the warm winter pattern, not the cold one. When we get into the La Nina, it's going to make this pattern look like we're going to be, you know, like summertime. So that's when we the, the really, really nasty cold comes and the cycles get even longer. So, so we end even later in the spring season and we start even earlier in the fall season and we truncate the summer growing season even more. That's at which point the Canadian ground becomes a big, big problem. And some of the Northern U.S. ground, we're just going to start to have very difficult times getting the crop in, getting the crop out, replantings, yield losses, and it's going to be ongoing. So that's where we see the weather side going. The last thing that we would um, uh, mention in terms of um, uh, overall the economy and, and the politics Overall, politics has just gotten crazy, um, as everyone can kind of see. Uh, that Any politician, any government, anywhere in the world seems to be doing anything that makes any sense. Not that they ever did, but they're really, really not making sense now. And so what we think is going to happen, there's going to be a loss of confidence trade going on where the world's going to lose confidence in the global government's ability to serve. And when we've gone through those periods, it has tended to shift assets towards um, those things that are more tangible. And this is part of what we think will be a kind of an inflationary cycle uh, that will be on top of the weather cycle that will create the kind of move higher that may surprise even me. And I'm bullish to the ag markets, but it may even surprise me how high this situation may go. Um, but that's the cycles that we see. And we think uh, for your listeners, for 
ag producers who are, especially those in the U.S., if they can participate in this upswing, uh, they should be able to move forward um, in pretty good shape. If they miss it, it's going to be difficult for them. Well, it sounds like we need to go buy a coat and, and get a get a greenhouse, man. It's going to be a going to be a fun. It's going to be a wild ride. I mean, it's something that we haven't haven't seen in obviously ten generations. You know, it's been two hundred fifty years since something like this happened. Um, but similarly, if you look back at the early two thousands, um, we were in a in a big El Nino effect there, and we had massive hurricanes, and we had you know, record growing conditions, like you said, the 2000, in the 2012 there hit that trough and it was, that's when corn price took off and got to eight bucks and we had 16, 17, $18 soybeans and stuff like that. So we have seen these swings before and the sunspot thing is a real thing guys. So if you, if you're listening to this and you're going, this guy's whack job and Seymour, you're an idiot. I'm telling you, go look it up. It's all go out and do the research on it. And there, there's nothing there that, that we've talked about that it is not factually based. So um, that would be a great place, I guess, to to throw out there, Sean, if folks wanted to reach out to you and, and learn a little more how you do stuff and what you guys are doing and what and what you can do for them, how would they do that? I mean, our website's the best place to go. It's Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. We have sample reports. Um, and lots of white paper we've written on our smart money indicator, lots of information of how our service might be uh, helpful to your listeners. And, um, um, you know, we also are available for, for speaking engagements. If anyone, you know, felt uh, strong enough about some of these, some of the content today on solar cycles, we'd be glad to, uh, uh, to visit with them and, and see if we couldn't help, um, you know, enlighten maybe them and some of the people they know. And, uh, and I really do appreciate you giving us the time to talk about this. It's, uh, we think it's a very important topic and we, uh, we really appreciate your openness to discuss something that to some may be a little bit controversial, but we think it's important to at least have people think about what this may mean if history repeats. Yeah. No, I'm a big believer in uh, those who don't know their history are doing to repeat it type. So this is, this is kind of my wheelhouse, man. So I, I dig this kind of stuff. So, well, Sean, I appreciate you being on the podcast, man, and I'm definitely going to reach back out to you in April when I'm still wearing my my uh, hooded sweatshirt when I should be on short sleeve and in, in, in jeans today. So, um, take care of yourself, and we will uh, catch you down the road, man. That's great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Here you can find Morning Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger and Angie Setzer. Also, Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. You'll be able to hear Dryline Farmer Podcast, Girls Talk Ag, The Topsoil Podcast, Ag News Daily, Working Cows, Heifer Please, Throwback Iron, and Ask Agnes. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working.
Mundo. Mundo.